Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. My guest today, Danilo Turk, is the former president of Slovenia and one of eight currently declared candidates to be the next UN Secretary General. He was president from 2007 to 2012 and also served as his country's ambassador to the UN for many years. Turk was born in 1952, just seven years following the Nazi occupation of Slovenia, and he shares how his mother's experience of being sent to a forced labor camp at the age of 14 affected his own childhood. That included an intense focus on education. By the time he was 14, Turk was devouring the Greek classics like Thucydides. By 18, he was in law school discovering human rights. We have an extended conversation about the intellectual curiosity that led Turk to human rights law and what it was like being a human rights legal scholar in the former Yugoslavia, which was then a communist country. We discuss his role during Slovenia's 1991 secession from the former Yugoslavia and the brief war that ensued, and the tactics he used as Slovenia's first ambassador to the United Nations to introduce this new country to the world. I caught up with Dr. Turk at his hotel room in Dakar, Senegal, where he was chairing a conference about the intersection of water and peace. And we kick off with a brief discussion about that issue before pivoting to a longer story about his life and career. A note before we begin, I've reached out to each of the eight currently declared candidates for UN Secretary General to invite them on this podcast to discuss the big moments in their lives and careers that help shape their own worldview. Uh, The idea here is to introduce the candidates' personal and professional histories into the public discourse and hopefully illuminate how some of these past experiences may guide their decision-making as Secretary General. Uh, So that's the idea. Uh, I've heard back from many, been rejected by none, so expect to hear many more of these conversations over the next few weeks and months. Uh, I think you will enjoy it. I know I did. And as always, you can go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to get in touch with me, check out our archives, download the app, or subscribe on iTunes. And now here is Dr. Danilo Turk. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. We have seen water becoming a cause of conflict in in many places already. I mean, uh, the drought in Syria has produced mass migrations to the cities, and that in turn has added to political tensions and then resulted in a war. Uh, In Darfur, for example, there has been a water over the war, and uh, during the war itself, uh, there has been, you know, there have been practices which which really shouldn't happen, uh, depriving civilian population of of water and so on. So there are 
real problems nowadays, and there can be more problems if the world doesn't organize itself and try to 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 act. So, how did you personally become interested in the issue of of water and peace? Look, I have when I worked as uh, uh, Slovenia's permanent representative at the UN, uh, we were on the Security Council in the years ninety eight, ninety nine. And we organized a thematic debate on prevention of armed conflicts. And that uh, idea of prevention, which was at that time very strongly uh, led by Kofi Annan, the then Secretary General, uh, of course has different aspects. For example, preventive deployment of peacekeepers, like was the case in Macedonia. Then uh, preventive action by the Security Council. And I was member of a team of the Security Council that traveled to uh, Indonesia, to Jakarta, and then to Dili in East Timor, and uh, managed to get a peacekeeping force sufficiently early so that the situation didn't degenerate into war. And of course, there are more classical diplomatic techniques like uh, good offices of the Secretary General, fact-finding. The whole, um, I mean, conclusion being that prevention requires a very wide variety of techniques to be used. And water cooperation is one of them and can be very important, and that's why it's worth studying. And of course, I haven't been dealing with water my entire life, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. I, although I come from a town, um, Maribor, in Slovenia, uh, which is uh, at the foothills of a granite mountain. So the quality of water is, is, is really very good there. <laughs> and, you know, We learn to appreciate uh, water quality from from very young age. I'm glad you mentioned your, your childhood growing up under a granite mountaintop. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, so uh, where when were you born? What year were you born? Well, I was born in 1952, uh, which okay. means that I am well, 64 years old now. Uh, and of course, I met, uh, I mean, I came across the uh, United Nations or learned about the existence of United Nations when I was 10 years old. Uh, that was at the time of Congo crisis. And I remember the voice of a radio reporter who very dramatically uh, reported a story, uh, that story of that war and the role of Doug Hammerschild, who was very active secretary general at that time. So that's, that was my first, first memory. Uh, you know, perception of, all right, there is this big organization out there and the secretary general who is trying to do something good to stop the war. And of course he perished trying to solve that war somewhere in the skies. Yeah. Well, I have been thinking, Congo. yeah, sure. Yeah, I have been thinking about the tragedy uh, many times later. Uh, I became much more interested in the UN. I studied it. I wrote a doctoral dissertation about the principle of non-intervention uh, in international law and in international relations. So, so and I have studied a lot of that later on, but that, of course, was a different sort of thing. I mean, the first uh, encounter was really very emotional and very uh, typical for, for a young boy. You know, boys at that time, were listening to the radio and reading the books. I mean, we had a TV, but TV was not yet fully developed. So you were born uh, just seven years after the end of of World War II. What did your parents do uh, when you were born? What kind of family were you born into? Well, my mother's family had a very uh, sad experience. They they, They lived in an area which was occupied by Germans. Right, like Slovenia was, was partly occupied by Germany and partly occupied by Italy, right? Correct, yes. 
And uh, the area of the Sava River, where my uh, mother's grand, uh, well, my mother's family lived, uh, was resettled to Germany uh, to a labor camp, and all members of, uh, of the family were involved in, in forced labor there. Uh, so my mother lost uh, four years of um, formative years for education. She always remembered that, and she was always telling us, uh, my brother and myself, you know, education is very important. I was deprived of the opportunity because I was sent to a labor camp when I was 14. What did she do at that labor camp? Family was working in an agricultural estate, and my mother, who was, as I said, 14 years at that time, was, uh, was a maid in a house, had to do a lot of different housework. Uh, and of course, she she didn't go to school at that time. Uh, what about your father's family? How did they? My, how did they my deal father's the war? family is uh, from Maribor, from the town in north of Slovenia. Uh, they were um, not particularly active in any way in World War Two. They, you know, tried to live. His his father was a shoemaker, and uh, they tried to be as uh, calm and. Uh, non-involved as possible. You know, that was, Maribor was part of German territory. It was annexed by Germany and the uh, repression was really quite brutal. So there was very little resistance there as a result of the type of uh, occupation and and annexation in that part of Slovenia. So they just survived the war and uh, after the war uh, my mother came to Maribor to to start uh, working in a textile factory. And that's where she met my father. They got married and so on. Uh, do you have any brothers or sisters? I beg your pardon? Do you have uh, siblings? I have a brother who is three years younger. Mm-hmm. Is he also involved in politics? No. Uh, he is uh, basically uh, an economist uh, working in the energy sector. He's a great mathematician. So he. Uh-huh. Uh, well, he knows many things which relate to mathematics of energy sector. Uh, so growing up uh, in the post-Cold War period in, in Slovenia, I mean, by the time you started to have your first memories, your first interactions with the world, was the experience of World War II and the Italian or Nazi occupation of Slovenia, did that still sort of weigh heavily on on your family's consciousness, on, on, on your own Not understanding good. of the world? Not really. You see, uh, this is history, and we, our family, never talked much about uh, World War II or the immediate experience. Except, my mother was really very, um, uh, how should I say, convincing when she was buying books uh, for for us. She was telling us, "Look, I was deprived of the possibility to study. You must study because you want to become something. You have to study." And she was very convincing in that regard. She brought uh, she bought me a book which, you know, might be of interest to you to see it as the Peloponnesian War, which which was published in Slovenian translation in, I think, 1964. So I I started to read it at the age of 14. I didn't uh, understand very much at the beginning, but then gradually uh, I started to understand the the the. Uh, complexity and subtleties of war and peace. I mean, this is probably the greatest history book on war and peace ever written. But you picked it up at the age of 14. So obviously you, you had an intellectual bent uh, and, and, and this, this fascinated you. How did you, um, 
then sort of how were you able to continue to pursue that kind of intellectual curiosity that your mother seemed to have um, inspired in you? Well, it was actually quite uh, uh, logical and also natural. I started with history. I was reading later on. I started to see this, which was very tough. But then I discovered Plutarch and, and Herodotus. And they, of course, were much easier to read. I became very fascinated by history. And later, as a result of my early excitement about history books, uh, I also became interested in, in law. Uh, some people would say that this is an unusual connection, but in my case, it was quite quite natural because through Plutarch, I got in touch with the Roman history and then Roman law, and I was thinking about what to do in life. So I decided to study law when I was, I think, 15 or 16 years old. And then at the age of 18, I, I started studying law. I was learning Latin in my high school. So I got many concepts and the whole structure of thinking from Latin, which helped me a lot later in the legal studies. You see, so the linkage between history and law can be uh, quite easily established. And in Slovenia, in the law schools, especially in Ljubljana, Roman law is a very important subject. Um, how um, like politically free was Slovenia uh, at that time, at the time you're going to law school? Like, did you, I know obviously it, was, it became under, under communist rule, uh, I would imagine probably around that sure. time. Um, what, how much political freedom did you have uh, to pursue the kind of studies that, that you are interested in? Uh, well, you know, the studies of law, of course, was um, part of the system that we had at that time. But if I, uh, my intellectual inquiry was uh, was again um, rather, how should I say, unique, and it was a line of thinking uh, since uh, the earlier inquiry into history. You see, the socialist era or communism was based on certain ideological constructs, and the legal system was very much organized around those ideological constructs, like associated labor like delegational system. You know, this, these words don't mean to you very much. Yeah. They don't mean you anything. But that, were, that was the legal system. In my um, studies, just from the beginning, right from the beginning of the law studies, it was, well, what is the real base of law? Where this, this uh, ideological things didn't look convincing at all, and they were confusing and convoluted. So that are, that's how I discovered human rights uh, in the second year of studies of law when we were studying criminal law and we learned about the basics of uh, fair trial, uh, you know, protection of the indictees uh, and things like this. And that's how I became interested in human rights because it looked to me that if you go in the construction of law from the individual and say, all right, you know, the basic unit is the individual. The individual has rights and obligations. And, of course, you construct the whole legal system around that. Then all of a sudden, the, the, the system becomes very logical. And that, that was the sort of intellectual, well, that, um, not adventure, but really mm -hmm. process that I went through in, in those years. That That's so interesting. In 71 you know yeah. For for a lot of people, you know, their their introduction to human rights is is something maybe personal or visceral. Like they had some human, they were deprived of some human rights, or or they witnessed some atrocity. But for you, it seemed it was it was really an intellectual curiosity that led you oh, to yes, legal theory. 
Sure. No, it was it was intellectual, but it was not uh, you know theoretical as something alien from life. I mean, I was trying to figure out what is law. Why am I studying law? What what purpose does it serve? And if it wants to serve a purpose, how convincing it is. And we had a discussion among students with professors. You know, it was not an ideologically corrupt place. It was a place where we, of course, uh, adjusted to the legal system, but we were thinking quite uh, quite freely on these matters. And then, obviously, I came uh, in touch with Amnesty International, which was then in its beginnings. Uh, they were starting to send letters to various people. I, I received uh, those letters in early 70s. What were those letters all about? Well, yeah, they were about uh, human rights violations in former Yugoslavia. So you were you were you were writing those letters. You were documenting those human rights violations. Well, I was I was writing uh, back to them about what I thought was the situation, the context in which things happened. And for me, it was also a learning process. I learned a great deal from that correspondence because there are many things that I didn't know before, and that's how I came across this whole problem of. Uh, systematic violations. Because in Slovenia, of course, there were individual cases of uh, violation of uh, due process of law and things like this. Uh, but I mean, the real drama was elsewhere, and I became aware of it through my correspondence with Amnesty International. Well, what, what kind of drama could you describe? Well, uh, if one thinks about the repression in Kosovo, which existed at that time already, although it was not very widely reported, or um, uh, the question of religious identities in Bosnia, which were under very strict control, and sometimes priests uh, went into prison for, uh, for you know, expressing their religious uh, beliefs and also, you know, uh, leading their religious communities, I mean, because the line between religion and politics uh, is never easy to determine. So that kind of thing was uh, was not uh, present in Slovenia, or, or at least not to an extent which would be so dramatic. People mm-hmm. didn't go to jail for this sort of things in Slovenia. Is, is, but in Bosnia, that was happening. I mean, did, why did Slovenia avoid that? Is it because maybe the population is maybe a little more homogenous than it is in other parts of the former Yugoslavia? That like the, those those like uh, this social is one fissures. Of the well, this is one of the reasons. Uh, the, the other reason is that Slovenia borders on Italy and Austria. So the entire population was uh, watching Austrian and Italian TV. So we always compared news. <laughs> and it was really quite interesting to discuss whatever there was to discuss um, on how did you see reports from you know, on our TV and what did you see on Austrian or Italian TV. And that ranged from, you know, uh, Middle East uh, political problems, Vietnam War, to Jackie Kennedy's appearance in Paris during the famous visit in, what was it, 1961 or 62. So, you see... So, you know, TV was a very mm-hmm. powerful instrument. That's funny. So so more than any other of the former uh, republics. That I mean, that would make intuitive sense, I suppose. Well, look, I mean, I tell you, you are asking me a question of my personal perceptions, yeah. and I can tell you those perceptions were very powerful. At that time, I was watching a political commentator on Austrian TV by name of Hugo Portish, who was a great expert on Middle East and on Soviet Union. And he had 
very interesting commentary on Austrian TV, and I was watching this pretty regularly, uh, so that was part of our uh, perception of the world. Uh, so it was always sufficiently open, and I think that later, many years later, when the time of change uh, was coming, uh, people very easily accepted the idea of human rights as basic for their future independent statehood. You know, this was mm-hmm. growing slowly and and then uh, crystallized in late 1980s. So let's let's talk about uh, the 1991, if if we can. What were you what what were you doing uh, leading up to the say independence referendum in 1991? Where, where were you professionally at that time in your life and personally at the time in your life? I was um, uh, suggesting constitutional changes, which were gradual. Uh, one of them, an early one, related to freedom of expression and prohibition of discrimination based on expressed opinion. We needed to refine the constitution of the Republic of Slovenia to make uh, to, to broaden the space for freedom of expression. That was in 1988 or so. And then later, uh, the um, question of, I I really strongly advocated the principle that a state of emergency cannot be established in Slovenia without an express consent of the National Assembly of Slovenia. As you know, Yugoslavia had a federal structure, and we uh, in Slovenia had our own assembly, kind of a parliament. Uh, My principle, which was you know, widely shared, but I articulated it, was, all right, uh, we need to protect ourselves against uh, any sort of uh, maneuvering with possible state of emergency, which, as you know, was imposed in Kosovo, uh, but Slovenia somehow protected itself in various ways, I mean, also with police and everything else, but also constitutionally, so I was working on that. Were you a member of the the parliament? Were you a member of the Slovene parliament? No, no, I was... uh, in a way, I was teaching at the law school at that time. I was known for my uh, engagement in human rights. I suggested creation of a human rights council in Slovenia in 1987. Uh, and that was a time when human rights really were, were kind of the <clears throat> um, spirit of the time. You know, people really got the idea uh, very clearly. And, and, and I think that in the entire Central and Eastern Europe, you saw a very fascinating process of human rights becoming the slogan of change and also very meaningful commitment of people. So all of a sudden, people like me who were you know, thinking about human rights and doing various types of work uh, became quite interesting for the parliament, for, for you know, other decision-making bodies. And I was writing for them. I was uh, writing to the Constitutional Commission, and they accepted some of my ideas. Later on, when Slovenia <clears throat> developed its own constitution in '91, I contributed a draft chapter on human rights, which was, again, discussed and developed in the Constitutional Commission. But uh, uh, it's important to understand that uh, the late 80s, uh, second half of 80s and early 90s were the time when human rights really were the leading idea of the entire society. Was that almost in a way to, um, to push back against communism, that human rights would be sort of an antidote to some of the um, excesses of, of communism? 
certainly. And I think um, even more, uh, it was seen as a meaningful platform for change. Uh, I believe that also people who didn't have any particular grievance during the time of communism, uh, any particular personal suffering or any, any, you know, any disadvantage, they accepted the idea because it was, it was uh, the idea of the time. Everybody wanted, you know, freedom, uh, human rights, became very powerful and not necessarily based on uh, any, any kind of painful personal experience. Um, so where were you, what were you doing in June 1991 when uh, the, the brief war broke out between uh, uh, Serbia and Slovenia? Well, this was not the war between Serbia well, and Slovenia. The former this was Yugoslavia. The war between the federal army. Right, right. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, Slovenia it's semantics, I suppose. But territorial yes. defense forces. Yeah. Uh, so Serbia obviously was one of the constituent republics of Yugoslavia, but was not involved directly. Well, I was uh, initially in Slovenia during the beginning of the war. I was a lot in the media. I went to the radio on the day of uh, proclamation of independence, uh, participating in a radio show on uh, what is going to happen and uh, what uh, what's happening and what the future of the country should be. And many years later, I listened to the record of that a conversation, and I was probably uh, one of the most optimistic people <laughs> at that time. I, I have that um, recollection now. Uh, then, uh, sometime in the second week of the war, I traveled to Switzerland um, for a meeting on humanitarian law. And I, uh, before leaving, I went to the uh, Ministry of Information got a few cassettes about what was going on in Slovenia. So I, when I came to Geneva, I uh, introduced that to the TV Swiss Romande, made a few interviews and did some work in the United Nations. I was an expert at the UN at that time already, so it was <clears throat> easy to have contacts, and I had those contacts. Yeah. So, so what was interesting, I, I suppose, uh, about the the Slovenian uh, experience of the breakup of the Soviet Union was that it, it, one, the war was brief. It was about I think it's called like the ten yeah. day war. Uh, two, very quickly, Slovenia was able to, um, I think, uh, um, garner the sympathy and support of the Western world, and it was probably from efforts, just as you were describing, of people like you um, smuggling out tapes and 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 building support uh, through your own networks. Yeah. Well, that's part of the explanation, but to us, it didn't look uh, that uh, ideal, you know. <laughs> it was not an ideal uh, uh, kind of process. It was short now, uh, looking in retrospect, but I remember that those days were initially quite dramatic. Later on, uh, it became clear that our system of uh, territorial defense worked very well, so there were no major uh, uh, battles. There were no major cases of bloodshed. You know, there were skirmishes, small battles here and there, uh, control of the territory by uh, Slovenian police and Slovenian territorial defense. And it was possible to stop violence uh, through a system. And that created a lot of self-confidence by the people. It all emerged as a matter of, I would say, two to four weeks. Uh, and of course, the ceasefire, which was agreed on 10 July, which was roughly no, two weeks after the beginning of the war, um, um, ended uh, the military actions completely, and they were not, they were, they, they didn't, uh, didn't happen again. So there was no relapse into, into an armed conflict, which is also rare. But the system of uh, control of the territory by the 
um, security forces of Slovenia and also the administration of Slovenia was uh, pretty effective already just from start. Did that? Did, did the experience that that you you know personally experienced in um, securing the independence of Slovenia? Um, how? What does that tell you uh, about the current challenges around the world regarding the principle of, of self determination? Are there any lessons that you might draw? Um, from that experience to apply to other conflicts around the world? Well, uh, there are, certainly. I mean, first, um, self-determination is an open-ended concept. You can't say that it is limited to uh, decolonization, which was the theory in the past. It happened in Central Europe with the dissolution of Czechoslovakia, first Yugoslavia, unfortunately, in a very violent fashion, Soviet Union, which was mostly fairly free of conflict. I mean, that was, a, you know, in a way, also a big surprise because people expected much more violent uh, situations as a result of the breakup of Soviet Union. And then, of course, the Czechoslovak case was completely peaceful. So, I mean, the principle of self-determination demonstrated its vitality and uh, one should never underestimate its uh, its existence and presence because, you know, people can can follow that principle, that idea very powerfully. And that but that's only one part of the story. The other part is that <clears throat> there has to be there has to be a rational political process to, to as much as possible. One has to work for that. To create uh, frameworks which allow violence either not to happen or to uh, to be to be limited. Uh, think about a place like Myanmar today. Uh, it's involved in a very important and delicate uh, transition. Uh, of course, it's ethnically very complex society, and it's important to construct the whole concept of legitimacy of Myanmar in ways which would uh, first uh, give uh, democratic principles uh, a fundamental role, but also the ethnic and religious uh, identities should be protected to a point at which people will see their self-determination in Myanmar as a whole, rather than in a particular regional or ethnically defined part of Myanmar. Um, after the uh, independence of, of Slovenia, you uh, entered electoral politics, right? You became a, a, a politician. Prior to that, you uh, had... Uh, is, is that right? And, and prior to that, you were, you were more... No, of a no, I, I was asked to go to New York. You know, I was they, not a politician. I was, look, I was a professor at the international, of international law at the law school. I was known for my human rights work. I was known to have experience with the United Nations. So the government asked me to go to New York, establish a mission, and start representing my country, which is what I did in 1992. And uh, which is what I was doing until 2000. I was ambassador of Slovenia to the United Nations for eight years. And I also represented the country on the Security Council in 98 and 99. Uh, so this, this was not political. This was, was you know, a, uh, professional. How, how does that work? I mean, so, so you are the first UN ambassador of a country that didn't exist two years prior. Yeah. What, yes. what are those first conversations like? How did you go about introducing your, your country to, to the world? 
Oh, look, one develops a certain simple tricks in this kind of situation. Do tell, do tell. <laughs> I was uh, actually, um, you know, I was familiar with the UN because I worked as an expert on a variety of UN projects, especially in the field of human rights. So I knew quite a lot about the way UN functions. Of course, New York was a new experience for me. And then I was often asked, well, why do you Slovenians believe that your country is viable? And I said, well, there are various reasons, but the simplest is to explain to you that we have received a full translation of the Bible in 1584, which means that we are one of the early nations in Europe which were linguistically and spiritually developed uh, already in 16th century to, to a point uh, which uh, allowed no irreversibility. You know, there are not very many nations that had uh, that translation into their own language. Uh, in England, King James's uh, Bible was translated in, I think, in 1620-something. So we were before the Brits, uh, which is uh, which is a sense of, which gives us a sense of pride in certain ways. Of course, in Germany, the Luther translation was much earlier, of course. And Europe was undergoing very big changes in the 16th century. But look, I, when I was asked to give a simple explanation, that was probably one of the easiest and the simplest explanations. We are formed as a nation. We are prepared to live within larger systems. We lived in Yugoslavia as long as Yugoslavia was a good system. But then when it turned uh, violent and dangerous, we decided to become independent. We mean no harm. We are smaller than any of our neighbors. We cannot be a threat to anybody, and we should try to be helpful. And, so that was basically the line. And you were elected to uh, to the Security Council. I mean, that's that's impressive. Just just five years, six years after yeah. forming your own country. So I suppose your entreaties and your explanations must have must have worked very well on your fellow ambassadors. Oh yes, uh, and of course, I have made many friends in the UN. Uh, I, I, I really like the UN a lot because UN is such a wonderful place uh, for its inclusiveness. You meet everybody there. Of course, one has to understand the differences. One has to understand many things and many things which are not good. But it's unique for its inclusiveness, and I made many friends. Uh, Slovenia proved to be fairly constructive and competent in our dealings with various international issues. So we had uh, the necessary level of credibility to become a member of the council. And then, of course, we had a young and competent team of diplomats. I was myself relatively young at that time, uh, but not too young for, for, for an ambassador. And I was in my late 40s. Uh, and, That's young uh, for the UN. I, I think. <laughs> well, <laughs> we, we were joking about this among ambassadors. Uh, uh, some of the senior colleagues telling us, "Well, why, why are you youngsters, uh, you know, taking these important positions?" And my uh, kind of joking uh, answer was maybe because we have so much diplomatic talent in our country. <laughs> <laughs> now, of course, it's obvious that when there is a new system. Uh, it's more open to younger people. Uh, and over time, of course, the whole uh, question of building a career and uh, going through the different phases becomes much more elaborate. So the countries which have longer history usually send um, um, 
more senior people to well because there's New the, York. Yeah, I mean there's the perception that like the older regime are there they're sort of like the older more corrupt regime especially in these countries undergoing transition where you have like I mean I visited Georgia for example not too long after the transition all the ministers there were like 35 years old um, yes. you, you know it's, it's just that idea that the older people are somehow entrenched in the old way of doing things and that the new fresh blood is a little less corruptible well that's part of the explanation I think yes um, so uh, can I ask I know we just have a couple minutes left but I would love to learn like why you personally decided to enter electoral politics. It sounds like you had a great diplomatic career. You um, were not, you know, you never had to face voters. Uh, what made you want to face an election, face voters? Well, um, it was a situation in 2007. <clears throat> I was approached by the Social Democrats in Slovenia. When, you see, I, I returned to, from New York in 2005 after having been away for 13 years. And my um, one of my main motives for return was to write a book about international law, which is what I did, and I finished that book in spring 2007. Uh, you know, I, I was writing it for two years, and it was an important project for me. But then the Social Democrats came and asked me if I wanted to become their candidate for the post of the president of the country. Um, uh, well, they had a kind of a strategy which uh, which led them to that uh, proposal. I reflected upon that for, I don't know, for two or three weeks, and then I said yes. Uh, and I wanted to see how it works. Uh, no, I always like to talk to people, and I didn't think that uh, facing an electorate is a particularly painful thing. I, I, I don't think it today. Uh, it's really quite interesting, and, and, mm -hmm. and uh, one has to take it as uh, a good thing. You know, in a new democracy, obviously, we all learn... Uh, and and that's uh, how I decided to to run, and um, I succeeded, and then I was a president. It sounds like a very radical transition from the very solitary experience of writing a book to then yes. going and put yourself in front of uh, a voter, a voting electorate. Yes, well, I like changes. <laughs> you know, we, when I studied Latin many years ago, one of the one of the proverbs. I mean, we were learning Latin proverbs, and one of the ones which we then teenagers liked to quote was "variatio delectant," uh, meaning that variation is um, is pleasant. Huh. Well, and now your next variation, I suppose, is running for secretary general. What what made you want to to pursue that job? What what was the moment that you thought you were going to be? You wanted to put your name in the ring for the position of secretary general. Well, some of my dear friends from the UN asked me if I was thinking about this, and I said, well, not really. And then I was told you should, and I did. And then after thinking about it for about two years, I said, yes, well, that would make sense. Uh, and of course, there are three basic reasons, really. One is long experience, because after all, I spent the largest part of my professional life within the UN or close to the UN. So, you know, long history, which started back in the late 70s, uh, is, is part of the reason. And then I really believe in the UN. I, I thought about the UN a lot, and I continue to believe that it is the indispensable global organization. And finally, I think I have a few ideas, perhaps a vision that could be relevant to the UN. So I thought, well, why shouldn't I try uh, Dr. Turk, we're, we're out of time, but I did want to give you the opportunity, if you have a couple more minutes, to talk about your, your book that you wrote. Sure, um, please. So, so uh, you mentioned earlier that the book was a really important and profound moment for you. Can you talk about what the book, what is the book, what inspired you to, to write it? 
Well, look, I mean, I have uh, two books of which which were really quite defining in my life. One was uh, uh, the book on, on the principle of non-intervention in uh, back in early 80s, which was a shortened version of my doctoral dissertation. And the second book was the textbook on the international law, the foundations of international law, which was published much later. What's your theory? What was your doctoral thesis and what sort of uh, examples did you draw upon? Well, look, I, I had this um, understanding that historically uh, the questions of non-intervention have always been part of the larger debate on sovereignty of states and jurisdiction uh, and independence. So that, that's a necessary part from the early years of uh, pluralistic international system, from the peace of Westphalia to our days, and that this is likely to be so in the future as well. Secondly, uh, the uh, limits of sovereignty change, and uh, one has to figure out how does the international system react to different types of intervention, including those by military force, but also non-military interventions. In 1980s, I believe that uh, sovereignty is going to be strengthened and that uh, the scope for uh, intervention will be reduced. And that had to do with the jurisprudence of that time, the, this, the uh, work of the United Nations, including the International Court of Justice. Nicaragua case was, of course, very prominent at that time. I'm not familiar and with the, that case. What, 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 what is that? Well, that's about the military and paramilitary activities in and around Nicaragua. It was a dispute between Nicaragua and the United States. And the International Court of Justice made a series of pronouncements uh, aiming at the limitation of use of military force. But basically, it, it is about that, and it is about limiting the use of force by states. Mm -hmm. What's I suppose interesting is that so you said that that all this jurisprudence over um, you know upholding principles of state sovereignty and, and non-intervention uh, were were evident in the 1980s. It seems that 15 years later, in, in your very own you know former Yugoslavia, was when that all seemed to sort of to fall apart. I remember in in the current U.S. ambassador to the UN's book about genocide, Samantha Power, she has this line sure. regarding the um, intervention in in uh, against uh, Serbia in 1999, yeah. where she says that the um, the armor of state sovereignty had firmly been pierced uh, by that NATO intervention. Uh, yeah. So it seems that, that uh, you know, just, just 15, 20 years later, um, those principles were slowly diluting. Well, uh, the uh, uh, situations uh, change. In early 1980s, we did not believe that genocide is something that is going to happen again. You have to understand that at that time it was believed that actually the future would be about uh, normalcy, human rights, uh, responsible exercise of sovereignty, and therefore sovereignty has to be protected. That was the atmosphere of 1980s. And if you look at what UN did in the immediate aftermath of the Cold War in 1993 in the Vienna Conference on Human Rights, uh, it actually said it is the spirit of our time and uh, that human rights are going to be central for states. Now, that was a very optimistic uh, vision, which unfortunately crumbled under the pressure of genocides that did happen in the 90s in Bosnia and also in particular in Rwanda. And that, I think, changed the whole 
um, um, system of international law because genocide all of a sudden became a real danger, uh, which was not believed in, in the 80s. Uh, it was seen as a matter of past mostly, and it was believed that yeah. international instruments such as the Convention uh, Against Genocide would uh, be a sufficient protection against recurrence of that horrible crime and, 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 and you know, horribly, uh, horrible tragedy. I mean, of course, you can describe this in so many words, uh, but the thing is that uh, what what happened in the 90s was unimaginable at the time uh, of, of 1980s. Uh, well, Dr. Turk, thank you so, so much for your time. Uh, I appreciate you speaking with me and, and sharing your stories. Well, look, it was uh, it was very pleasant. Uh, I, I, I like to chat, as you have discovered. That's so great. You have it. <laughs> I could talk human rights law with you all day long, I feel like. This is great. <laughs> Uh, well, look, I mean, uh, if we meet later at some point uh, uh, in New York or elsewhere, I mean, I'd be happy to sit down with you and, and, and discuss everything uh, in more detail. I just want to take one of your classes, I feel like, because I know you taught at Columbia for a while. That'd be great. <laughs> yes. Yeah. In New York, as a great city, uh, I spent some of my most uh, exciting, intellectually exciting part of my life and uh, I really appreciate all this. Now, not everybody is of the same opinion, I know, but this is kind of my life experience. Uh, well, Dr. Turk, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. All right, thank you all for listening. Huge thank you to Dr. Turk to speak with me before his next meeting in Dakar, Senegal. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, I've reached out to each of the currently eight declared candidates. There may be more new candidates down the pipe, and I will reach out to them as they declare. But yeah, so I, I mentioned earlier, I've reached out to all of them. I've heard back from many, been rejected by none. So expect to hear these kinds of in-depth conversations about the lives and careers and the big events and ideas and and experiences that shape the worldview of each of these potential next UN Secretaries General. All right, we'll see you next time. Bye.